0: .3 FM When I'm listening to the radio, you bet your bottom dollar. I'm gonna be listening to WCBN. I'm Patrick Elkins, and this is Hot Meat for Young Lovers with Jib Kidder. And when we listen to the radio, what are we gonna to listen to?
1: Hot
2: jams! Hot jams. Hot jams, hot jams, red hot jams, red legs, obvious CBN,
0: FM Ann Arbor.
3: Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so pleased to have Jesse Walker um, on the program. Jesse Walker is joining us from his home um, in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, Jesse, thanks for thanks for being on Living Writers today.
4: I'm very happy to be here.
3: And and Jesse, were you able to hear the first song? Because you, you picked it yeah, as our, I did. our I lead did. song. <laughs> <laughs> the milkman's a, uh, a spy, the po- or the postman's a spy. I think that's where we were drifting off there. That's pretty great. Why why did you pick that one, Jesse?
4: Uh, well, the the book is United States of Paranoia, and I was thinking what songs have paranoia in the title, and the acute schizophrenia paranoia blues came to mind <laughs> by the Kinks. When I when I was a DJ at CBN long ago, I, I probably played that album more than any other. So it would it was good to squeeze it in here somewhere too.
3: Oh, that's perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah, like hats off to that that time when when were you a DJ here, Jesse? I was
4: originally a DJ from I, I started as a freshman in 88 and continued after I graduated and was just sticking around town working at Borders until I left in 93. And then um I was back in town uh for the 2008-09 school year. Um, While my wife was doing a a fellowship and uh, the CBNers very kindly allowed me to DJ um, as an old man. So I was back for a year then.
3: (laughs) Well, you're always welcome here, Jesse Walker, the open door policy. Well, Thank you for sure. Um, so yeah, I actually the United States of paranoia, a conspiracy theory, your book out with Harper Collins, um, 2013, this is really the occasion for the conversation here today. Um, and also we've got, um, uh, your other book, your earlier book, rebels on the air An alternative history of radio in America out with New York university press, um, in 2001. Um, we've got that book on the table too. Um, with, before we get to the conversation, Jesse, I'm just going to read um, your short your short bio. Jesse Walker is a senior editor at Reason Magazine and Reason.com. He has written on topics ranging from pirate radio to copyright law to political paranoia, and is author of the book Rebels on the Air: An Alternative History of Radio in America, and also this one, The United States of Paranoia: A Conspiracy Theory. His writing has also appeared in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The New Republic, and many other publications. He lives in Baltimore with his wife and two daughters. So there we go.
4: That sounds like me. That's,
3: it's you. It's, it's indeed you. <laughs> we didn't do a voice recognition test, though, to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> we just have to go with it. Seriously, after reading your book, Jesse, it's, you kind of see the world in a, uh, with a new lens.
4: Yeah, I I, I would hope so. Um, I mean, for for folks uh, who haven't seen it, um, this is sort of a a history of conspiracy stories um, in America. And and sometimes I say a history of conspiracy theories because people glom onto that a little more quickly, understand sort of what to expect. But conspiracy stories is, is better, I think, because... I get into things like, um, you know, novels, movies, and you know, even some games and comics, and you know, other examples of uh, people telling stories that they didn't necessarily believe, but which then shaped the things that other people were willing to believe. Um, and also because conspiracy stories, I mean, whenever you talk about conspiracy theories, if you go for long without mentioning that some conspiracies are real, someone will burst in and say, you know, in, in all caps or the vocal equivalent, what about conspiracies that are true? And of course, that is part of the story, you know, too. I mean, there's uh, I, there's this sort of continuum from stories that are that are fictional and, and nobody believes to stories you can read about in the history books, you know, that, you know, that. Misbehavior of the CIA that the Church Committee exposed Mm -hmm. in the 1970s, and this whole spectrum in between of where you get from something that's nonsense but has grains of truth up to something that you know is is rooted in truth but gets speculative, and you're not sure if you can accept all of it, Um, and it's all part of the stories that Americans uh, tell one another. Um, It's part of our folklore, Um, and I guess sort of the there's two basic uh, themes of the book. Um, One of them is that everyone does this. It's not just a fringe thing, you know, the far right, the far left, Mm -hmm. um, but people at, you know, the dead center of the American establishment, you know, ordinary workaday Americans, tell conspiracy stories, believe conspiracy stories, and not just the ones that are obviously true. Um, And the second is is that even when a story uh, says absolutely nothing true, or at least nothing true about the subject of the story if it catches on, then it says something that's true about the anxieties and the experiences of the people who believe it. And so you can still learn a lot from them. So with, uh, with this book, I just tried to take a, a look at the American past through the prism of uh, the things people have been afraid of.
3: And, you know, uh, Jesse, how long did it, because the the notes section of the book is is very impressive um and of which is obvious from just reading when you enter through, like the begin, the beginning pages of the book like when you're you're steeped in all this this material how long what was the making of the book like because in a sense that's the material that surrounds you for that time and like thinking about what drives fears and and these stories that's a lot yeah, that's it's, kind of heavy to be with for a long time
4: yeah well you know it's it's one of those i it's hard to answer how long it took me to write it because for a while I was working on this book without realizing it. I mean, there are oh. there are quotes in this book from um, interviews I did in the mid-1990s, you know, for a magazine piece on the, uh, that particular article was about the intersection between Uh, the militia movement and and black militants and the sort of unexpected uh, interchange between these two worldviews. Um, And there are quotes in the book that go back there, and I didn't see myself as writing a book then. But this draws on um, work I've been doing for, you know, 18 years. That said, I started circulating um, a uh, proposal, uh, which originally took a somewhat different form. Um, Oh, I don't know, four or five. Uh, years ago, maybe, and the, um, the time from when I was given the go-ahead by Harper saying, yes, we want this, to me turning in a first draft um, was between a year and a year and a half. Um, in part, again, because I was drawing on some materials that I'd written before. But, you know, the vast majority of the book was, you know, uh, written, I mean, even the parts that was based on stuff I'd written before was greatly expanded for the book. So it's it's hard to give you a firm answer to that. So anywhere between (laughs) a year and a half and 18 years.
3: Right, there you go. (laughs) And plus you don't want to really be pinned down to it, probably, right? (laughs) I, I, you know, I,
4: I... I could give any number of answers, and no one could check it, right? But someone could come up with a conspiracy theory. Uh, I guess the real answer to what you're the sort of underlying question is I've been marinating in this stuff for a long time. I mean, even longer than I was uh, writing about it, uh, because I've always been interested in conspiracy stories, um, both in the sense of – you know, being interested in serious investigative journalism that exposes wrongdoing and in the sense of being interested in weird American folklore and stuff that's just nuts um, but fascinating, <laughs> you know. So it's a uh, – and and that was I mean, anyone who remembers you know me on the air 25 years ago, and I'm I'm sure there might be maybe two Ann Arborites who do. They're listening. Uh, remember, yeah, that I that I would go into both of those themes um, at various uh, programs that I did.
3: So so this is some this is one of your like uh, is it obsessions in a way?
4: Yeah, I mean that's that's a dangerous word <laughs> in this context, but sure.
3: but somehow somehow apt um well you know because i was even struck by um some of the examples you were using like i'm thinking about when you were saying the word stories um jesse too when i was reading the section of the book where you talk about nathaniel Hawthorne's story um young goodman brown Mm -hmm. as a way to think about how in in fiction, a a storyteller was thinking about what had happened in Salem with, um, a- ac- accusations and, and the witch trials, for example. Um, so when, when things, when you were putting this together, uh, how did you start weaving the story? Because you, you move, cause we, it's not, it's not chronological, um, Necessarily, how these pieces are are interwoven. Um,
4: yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's a chronological element to it. I, the, the structure of the book um, is the first half of the book. I lay out five primal myths, and I don't mean myths in the sense of things that aren't true. I mean myth, myths in the sort of broader anthropological sense of these sort of culturally resonant stories that organize the way we perceive the world. And these are sort of five conspiracy stories that are told again and again. You know, the enemy outside, the enemy within, uh, the enemy above, the enemy below, and the benevolent conspiracy. And we can get into what those specifically mean um, later on. And then the second half of the book is me looking at the last half century or so of American history uh, with the toolkit that we set up in the first half of the book, but when I was writing the first half, um, and, and part of the re- well, I, I, I can come back to that. I thought, I, getting to what you were saying about you know the um, the stories is that I wanted to find a way to sort of suck people into the narratives and sort of get across what they what they were by telling a story and not telling the story of what happened, but telling the story of the way people described what happened, or the way people perceived what happened. So each one of those opening chapters begins with me sketching out the story, uh, an enemy outside story, for example, begins with me describing you know, these ideas that the uh, settlers had about the Indians out in the wilderness and their dealings with Satan and Hell and their plots against the white settlers and so on. and usually i um grabbed on i could grab on to sort of a specific conspiracy uh theory in history that sort of um symbolizes you know it's it sort of is a good sort of urtext text for you know the, the way the story you know developed afterwards but with salem i mean there already was this um this really, I mean, you know, masterfully told, but you know, someone a more uh, greater literary figure than me, right? Nathaniel Hawthorne. So I was able to sort of like go back to his story and retell it in a way that focused on these elements and then sort of back out from there to well, what actually happened in Salem? How do we see echoes of this? you know, in both, you know, real fears people had down the road of you know, of Mormons, of homosexuals, of all kinds of different enemy within um, conspiracy stories, and also in fiction, so we could then look at things like Riders of the Purple Sage, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, <laughs> um, stories that you hear the titles, you say, wait a minute, that's a science fiction movie, and there's a Western novel, and, and then you said Nathaniel Hawthorne at the beginning, but there actually are these common themes that keep coming back again and again in each Version of the story um and actually it was a uh, a person at Michigan who had suggested to me that i go back and reread young goodman brown uh, oh, really? eric rapkin who teach yeah eric rapkin who teaches oh, yes. uh english um i had uh, had lunch with him while I was there for that in my two thousand eight oh nine return and I told him I was thinking about this um this uh, writing this book and he said, oh uh, have you read Young Goodman Brown since I assigned that to you when, I was, when you were 19? And <laughs> and I said, no, it's not very well. You, you should look at it. It fits what you're saying. And it did.
3: It was good of him to also assume that you had read it then, too. <laughs> Just, <Right. laughs> you, you know what, Jesse? We're going to take a short break, and then, then we'll be right back. And maybe, would you mind reading for us, um, maybe part, like a section from the United States of Paranoia?
4: Um, I I don't mind at all. When
3: we come back? Okay. Today on Living Writers, Jesse Walker joins us from Baltimore, Maryland. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got text behind the glass. After this short break, we'll be right back.
2: And there ain't nothing wrong with this song. (laughs) i was feeling sad and kind of blue i didn't know what i was gonna do the communists was coming around they was in the air they was on the ground they was all over so run down most hurriedly and joined the john burt society got me a secret membership card went back home to the yard Started looking on the sidewalk. Under the hedges. Well, I got up in the morning and looked under my bed. I was looking every place with them gold darn reds. Looked behind the sink and under the floor. Looked in the glove compartment of my car. couldn't find any.
3: Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did um, today on the program. Jesse Walker joins us from Baltimore. Um, we're talking about his latest book, Out with HarperCollins, The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. Um, Jesse, that's uh, you've chosen all the songs for today's show. And this one reminds me of the part of the book where you have... Um, You cite that in 67, President Johnson asked the cabinet if the communists are behind the country's urban riots.
4: Yeah, and and, uh, his attorney general said, uh, I don't have any evidence of that. And Johnson basically said, keep looking. He didn't like getting that um, response because he was convinced they were. Um, But the interesting thing about that song reminding you of that, and this is another sort of theme of the book, is Bob Dylan's target in that um, song, I mean, his satiric target, is the John Birch Society. Um, Lyndon Johnson is not a bircher. Lyndon Johnson is the kind of mainstream uh, liberal American <laughs> right. politician that the John Birch Society hated. Um, and he was just as prone, well, I shouldn't say just as prone, but certainly prone to that kind of uh, imaginary fear.
3: And do you, and er, like in the first quarter, Jesse, when you were talking about um, america as americans and how this um you know this idea of these stories have uh, whether true or not have shaped like our our history and also like the cultural imagination um of america are, are americans more prone than to paranoia or or when as you're writing this and and thinking about the primal myths? Like, are, is this something that's also human nature, but we're looking at more if, in the U.S.?
4: It's the second one. I mean, I, I think this is about humanity. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's not that Americans are uniquely paranoid. It's just that we can be paranoid in unique ways because of our own distinct culture and history. Um, and I suspect that you could find versions of those five primal myths you know in completely different cultures but they would look completely different i mean or i should say not versions of those five primal myths but you could do a similar fivefold division but the enemy outside in mm-hmm. um in a, a country that's you know surrounded by world powers is going to be different from the enemy outside imagined in a in, you know a society that's sort of expanding into what is perceived as wilderness um, and 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 so, it, it, it's not that. um, and, and you know, this is one of those things I I, I say it at the beginning of the book. But uh, when I wrote the afterward for the paperback edition, it just came out. I I felt I needed to stress it again because some readers um, were, were thought I was you know making. It, I even had some complaints. People saying, "Well, you say this about Americans, but isn't it true of others?"
3: Yes, it's true of everybody. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm just looking at the American version. So. It's right. Don't be paranoid. Everyone's paranoid. <laughs> Right. <laughs> no, that's great. Oh, so Jesse, so the paperback has just come out, then.
4: Yeah, right? a couple of weeks ago.
3: Oh, great! So people can can. This is then good timing for our, our conversation, then too. This is great. Would you mind reading, um, reading part something for us?
4: Yeah, this is from the first chapter, and you don't need a whole lot of setup for this. I guess I'll just say um, that this comes right after, or I should say, shortly after. Um, a part where I, I discuss um, Richard Hofstetter wrote a famous essay called The Paranoid Style in American Politics, which um, I, you know, kind of people always cite it. It came out 50 years ago, and in some ways he's kind of my foil in the book because I disagree with him about it a lot. Um, but which I, uh, although I, you know, I generally give him credit for the real insights in the essay too, which, is, with which there certainly are some. Um, and I'll just mention that context because I do come back to him at one point in this section. On October 30th, I'm sorry, on October 30th, 1938 at 8 p.m., the CBS Radio Network transmitted The War of the Worlds, a special Halloween edition of The Mercury Theater on the Air. The broadcast, directed and narrated by Orson Welles, was based on H.G. Wells's famous novel about a Martian invasion on Earth, of Earth, but the action was moved from Victorian England to contemporary New Jersey. The first half of the story jettisoned the usual format of a radio play, and adopted a more adventurous form, a live concert interrupted by ever more frightening bulletins. It was and is a brilliant and effective drama, but the broadcast is famous today for reasons to go well beyond its artistic quality. You might think you know this story. In popular memory, hordes of listeners mistook a science fiction play for an actual alien invasion setting off a mass panic. That's the tale told in one of the most frequently cited accounts of the evening, a 1940 study by the social psychologist Hadley Cantrill. For a few horrible hours, Cantrill wrote, people from Maine to California thought that hideous monsters armed with death rays were destroying all armed resistance set against them, that there was simply no escape from danger, that the end of the world was near." Long before the broadcast had ended, people all over the United States were praying, crying, fleeing frantically to escape death from the Martians. Some ran to rescue loved ones. Others telephoned farewells or warnings, hurried to inform neighbors, sought information from newspapers or radio stations, summoned ambulances and police cars. At least six million people heard the broadcast, Cantrell claimed, and at least a million of them were frightened or disturbed. The truth was more mundane, but also more interesting. There were indeed listeners who, apparently missing the the initial announcement that the story was fiction, took the show at face value and believed a real invasion was underway. It it is not clear, though, that they were any more common than the people today who mistake satires in The Onion for real newspaper reports. Cantrell's numbers are dubious, and the people interviewed in his book were not a representative sample of the population. Nobody died of fright or was killed in the panic, nor could any suicides be traced to the broadcast, the media scholar Michael Sokolo noted. Hospital emergency room visits did not spike, nor, surprisingly, did calls to the police outside of a few select jurisdictions. The streets were never flooded with a terrified citizenry. Telephone lines in New York City and a few other cities were jammed, as the primitive infrastructure of the era couldn't handle the load. But it appears that almost all the panic that evening was as ephemeral as the nationwide broadcast itself and not nearly as widespread. That iconic image of the farmer with a gun ready to shoot the aliens, it was staged for Life magazine. End of quote. Of the people who did mistake the fictional news bulletins for real reports, a portion were under the impression that the invaders were not extraterrestrials but Germans, a less implausible scenario. Even the spikes in telephone calls didn't necessarily represent public panic. The press critic W. Joseph Campbell has pointed out that the calls could be an altogether rational response of people who neither panicked nor became hysterical, but sought confirmation or clarification from external sources generally known to be reliable. Campbell added that the call volume must also have included people who telephoned friends and relatives to talk about the unusual and clever program they had just heard. If Wells' broadcast derived some of its impact from Americans' anxieties about international tensions, the exaggerated reports about the response have persisted because they speak to another set of fears. After the play aired, the prominent political commentator Walter Lippmann took the opportunity to warn against crowds that drift with all the wind that blow and are caught up at last in the great hurricanes, adding that those, quote, masses without roots and their volcanic and hysterical energy are the chaos in which the new Caesars are born. As Sokolow put it, the legend of the Mars Panic Quote, cemented a growing suspicion that skillful artists or incendiary demagogues could use communications technology to capture the consciousness of the nation. To capture consciousness. What a chilling image. It's an idea that appears when dissidents warn their leaders are using the mass media to brainwash us. But you can also find the fears among those leaders themselves, who have a long history of fretting over the influence of any new medium of communication, if Orson Welles was cast as a wizard with a power to cloud men's minds, his listeners were imagined as a mindless mob, easily misled by a master manipulator. The social order is disrupted. Riots are sparked from afar. The War of the World story is usually told as a parable about popular hysteria, of a sudden spike in the sort of fear that Hofstetter's essay decried. But at least as much, it is a parable about elite hysteria, of the anti-populist anxiety that Hofstetter's essay exemplifies, no history of American paranoia can be complete unless it includes the latter.
3: Thank you, Jesse. So no history can be complete.
4: Not that this history is complete, but
3: <laughs> well, it's a, it's <laughs> a little bit big. over
4: the top, maybe with that line. i that like I come to think of it.
3: <laughs> well, it's a pretty big book. I mean, it yeah, is. It this is. is this is a tome.
4: You have to draw the
3: line somewhere, yeah. Or there might be a part 2. Well,
4: I, you know, I was actually um I was in a radio station yesterday um waiting to be interviewed and the person I was waiting with uh was a uh, had been a backup singer for Stevie Wonder and we oh. got to talking about something that I I wish I had found out about in time to include in the book, which are all these conspiracy theories that Stevie Wonder can actually see. Oh. Um, <laughs> and that his blindness is all like a big ruse on us. Um, so I, literally everything significant and almost everything insignificant has uh, conspiracy theories attached to it. So the complete history would probably be the size of, a, of the graduate library.
3: Well, it could, well, you know what, let me just say that um, I await in, the, in 18 years from now what, what the next, I mean, you'll just have another volume.
4: Oh boy. You know, the, the, the natural sequel, which I'm not gonna write, would be, you know, the the worldwide uh look at this, the the cross cultural Um, comparing American paranoia to uh, paranoia in other societies. I'm not going to write that because to do a good job, I would need to speak, you know, two dozen languages, um, (laughs) you know, to engage with the primary uh, sources, which I can't. But um, if some brilliant polymath wants to devote 18 years to that, um, he or she has my blessing.
3: Has the Um, go-ahead. So with the or um the Orson Welles piece, how how fun was that to write like telling as you're cuz now you're presenting like contextualizing it in this book?
4: Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those things that um if you had asked if you told me 18 years ago you're going to write a book about paranoia and a section is going to deal with the War of the Worlds, I would have just assumed it was about those fearful people out in the streets. Um and it turned out to have this great other dimension to it. Um, the way, and, and this is another you know thing that you know happens again and again in the book. I, I mean, we've seen it, um, you know, a, after any natural disaster. You know, the assumption that people are going to panic, um, the rumors sometimes that people are rioting and panicking, like the, the stories that were told about you know hurricane, after Hurricane Katrina. I mean, the stories of alleged activity is a lot worse than rioting and panicking, um, which turned out to be false. Um, and these come up again and again and this kind of speaks to the um, actually it speaks in different ways to both the enemy below stories and the enemy within stories the uh, the the enemy within um, the the agents of the conspiracy could be anyone could be someone who looks like you they're not conspicuously alien um, and so there's this sort of fear that people could you know the 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 master manipulator you know Orson Welles could suddenly turn the uh, neighbors next door into this <laughs> panic mob and then the enemy below the um it has to do more with uh, people who are, are conspicuously alien but are have a uh, a, a definite role in the society um, so Whoever recently, is, if you have like sort of white Americans looking at the black underclass and telling stories, mm-hmm. as you did after Hurricane Katrina, um, so there's some overlap there with the enemy within stories, but it takes on, you know, this this, this other uh, texture um, because there's that fear of fear of the alien mixed in.
3: And your and your book really does, as it's moving through time in these different stories, it it has it it points the fact that at various times in the history. Um, different groups have been the other
4: yeah 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 i mean and everyone is the other to someone else that's you know true. i mean it, it's i mean in the enemy outside story even you know there's that brief moment um because i'm i'm the at least the opening i mean i move into other directions talk about you know fears of the germans during world War one and so on and there's stuff i just didn't even have room for like yellow peril fears but the great focus there is on uh the fear of Indians among the settlers i mean that's you know the that that's the first form it took when um, Europeans came to America. But there's still that moment in there where I turn around and say, we have this legend of that sort of ha- speaks to how the Indians saw the Europeans. And of course, the Europeans were an enemy outside to the Indians. We don't have the, the sorts of written records that would allow me to do the full you know, story oh. of um, how different Indian nations uh, saw these interlopers. But we did have that one um, bit of folklore that had survived about the devil teepee who looked like an Englishman, um, which I was able to include in the book.
3: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back to hear more about Jesse Walker's The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory, out now in paperback. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We'll be right back.
1: I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and faith. (laughs) And I made damn sure the pilot washed his hands and sealed his fate.
3: Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Jesse Walker joins us from Baltimore. His latest book, "The United States of Paranoia: A Conspiracy Theory." Jesse, damn, these are good songs you've picked for today's show.
4: <laughs> was that the Leibach?
3: <laughs> yes.
4: So- yeah. The, the um, there's a. Uh, I, I don't know if that was the track I had in mind because there's so many versions. But there's um, there's a version on there where they keep sample. Um, I I assume Mick Jagger asking if someone has a theory about who killed Kennedy, uh, sort of riffing on the uh, "they shouted out who killed the Kennedys" line and um, sympathy for the devil. Um, But that was pretty spooky too, actually. That was (laughs) was spookier. I
3: know. (laughs) Hopefully, mission accomplished, right? Hopefully, we're unsettling some folks out. Right. Um, Well, well, before the break, Jesse. you were talking also about the the idea of the the native americans and how um it it seemed like in in the in that chapter you were showing really sort of uh the dishonesty that was present in the the american media in telling these stories that weren't that really weren't true about what was happening and um like how many people Um, Native Americans were apparently killing or, you know, like just sort of really um, publishing stories as fact that weren't that that had no basis.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a uh, but this is how um, this is how uh, things were perceived. I mean, there's obviously a a certain measure of um, opportunistic. Lie telling, you know, during in any kind of wartime situation or tensions that could lead to war, but I mean, a lot of these things I was quoting um, are, you know, these histories written um, by the people who lived through the events, Um, and while they're doing a certain amount of, you know, this is the version that makes them and their their fellows uh, look good, um, it it is. uh, I mean, when they talk about. you know, the air being filled with fiery flying serpents and hostile Indian tribes being led by, you know, ministers of Satan, actuated by the angel of the bottomless pit, Um, that that was the way that uh, they perceived their relationship with uh, these people. Now, that's not the only way that, uh, in this case, we're talking about, you know, Puritans, um, uh, you know, perceiving their relationship with with the Indians. There was a lot of, you know, interest in... uh, in, uh, Christianizing the Indians and and, um, and making them part of the, the settlers community making them part of Harvard and so on uh, but uh, there at the same time there's a some um, I, I, I I should say actually that you know that's part of what led to a lot of these anxieties was the fear that you know instead of Christianizing the natives uh, the settlers would be Indianized and a lot of uh, paranoid stories would really spark up during the, you know, these, about these people who sort of maybe lived a bit outside the community's gates, wouldn't necessarily make it to church all the time. We're dealing with the Indians beginning to seem more Indian. And so then that, you know, you move forward a couple centuries and you have, you know, more conventional press accounts, um, like the stuff that uh, led up to the uh, Wounded Knee Massacre. Yes. They're relaying rumors, you know. Um, and I, I, Certainly you know people on the frontier, newspapermen were not above making up stories, uh, but at the same time, uh, you hear something and it speaks to your fears and you say, that's just what I expect to happen and you print it. It's not so different from some of the stuff you see online right now yes. um, when you know whether it's a liberal or a conservative or some other sort of website um, immediately runs with the story that makes the other team look bad um, without you know checking out all the details. Um, only this was in a different context that was a lot more lethal.
3: And yes, yes, and and Jesse, you mentioned like as you're saying like it's not that much different than things that are happening now with it's like this agenda setting or or these spinning of stories that a certain group wants to be true, whether they have supporting evidence or not. In in reality, um, it's how is technology changing? Like how like can you can you speak to that a little bit um because i mean yeah
4: go go it's not true i think that as some people claim that the internet is making uh conspiracy theories more popular what i think that that it has done is that number one that it's made them fast spread much more quickly um number two i mean just you know the the um, news cycle in general has sped up, so has yes. the you know alternative uh, conspiracy news cycle. And uh, number two, um, they made it much more visible. I mean, there are stories in this book that we only know about because a sociologist or an anthropologist went out into the field and took down what people were saying. I mean, that's that's how I was able to write about Southerners during World War II, believe, believing that blacks were forming swastika clubs and of making a deal with the Germans that they would be set up in charge of America if Hitler won the war. That wasn't like printed in any newspaper that I'm aware of, but you know, a sociologist, I, I think I would have to double-check, but I think at the University of North Carolina, uh, went out and talked with people and wrote these things down. Um, nowadays, you can just watch that unfold on Facebook um, without going out into the field, because the conversations that might have just been had at the bar um, or some other public place – you know, now a lot of that public conversation happens in text form, and therefore is more visible. And then the number, th- the number three thing, um, is that because it's more visible, um, people from different subcultures find it easier to see and then absorb, and in some ways mix with the stories being told by other subcultures. I mean, this has always been something that happens you know to some extent uh you know different cultural groups encounter one another and and there's the, all the usual culture clashes and cultural mixing but online i mean really picking up uh in the 1990s uh, and intensifying from then till now you can have you know the hippies and the black nationalists and the flying saucer people and and so on reading each other's uh conspiracy theories or even interacting at the same conspiracy forum and then picking out the uh the parts of the theory that some other group some very different group is saying absorbing that into your own story and um doing it uh, and and putting your own spin on it uh and you know when you're doing that at internet speed you know these mutations happen much quicker too
3: yes like a a, def- a highly caffeinated version of telephone definitely yeah. or something yeah. <laughs> um it so the Illuminati is something that is, you know, if you look in the, um, back in the, the, the section, you can see like the Illuminati is surfacing on so many pages throughout the book here. Um, when you Mm -hmm. look in the appendix and one of the things that I found, like one of my favorite things that, that you, that you found, um, Jesse was when, um, Apparently Prodigy accused Jay Z of being a member of the Illuminati and
1: then yeah.
3: and then um Jay Z's response like to these rumors was by wrapping the line, I said I was a Mason, not that I'm a Mason
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> I just thought that was brilliant. And yeah. Yeah, it's one of those
4: lines. I saw it and I knew I had to stick it in somewhere. <laughs>
3: I mean, it's perfect That is really but and and the part that's like it that's it's because it's part of this other like uh, larger cultural. um, Well, obviously, all of this is cultural, but the sections where you're talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the Da Vinci Code um, and and even an interview with 50 Cent that um, like it was just so interesting to see how people are even trying to. Like this journalist that was asking um, 50 Cent some questions, trying to even lead him to talk about how the secret society might be co-opting his music as a vehicle to get their message across. And has he become one of them, you know, and speak for them? And then yeah, I mean, with, I mean, I've got that in
4: front of me now, and it, it's a great exchange because it's one of the things where the question is so long, and then the answer is just because the, the 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 questioner was Tarsha Jones, who uh, I think was on the air in Philadelphia and end, but don't hold me to it. Um, she's she's been you know on the radio in different places. She says, "Have you ever been approached by the secret society that when a rapper and I'm talking about musicians, black artists reach a certain level, the secret society still wants to infiltrate and control the minds of our youth, and so they incorporate you into the secret society, and so secretly you put out messages, but you don't go against their grain. It's like you're dressed like us, but but you speak for them." And then 50 Cent's answer is just. I haven't been approached by anybody like that, which, you know, <laughs> there's not much more to say about it. But uh, but yeah, I mean, and one of the great things about um, watching the Illuminati uh, story take hold um, in the hip hop sphere is, I mean, or just in general, I mean, the Illuminati are like sort of the ultimate flexible conspiracy story. They turn up in so many contexts. Um, they first appear in uh, an American context at the end of the of the eighteenth um, century, um, and actually, if you count the uh, the uh, the uh, Alambrados, so the Spanish Illuminati, uh, you know, which is not connected, but later, you know, conspiracy theorists tried to connect them <laughs> to the Bavarian Illuminati. Of they course, they even got invoked a hundred years before, uh, more than a hundred years before that. So. Uh-huh. It's, this is something that pops up in such radically different contexts, and sometimes they're seen as you know, the master manipulators that control the world. Sometimes they're seen as this demonic force that's trying to take over the world. Sometimes they're seen as a revolutionary force that's trying to overturn the world. Sometimes they're seen as this sort of benevolent or potentially benevolent mystic force <laughs> that stands outside the world, and you see combinations of all these different visions as well. I mean, it, it's so adaptable. Because it speaks to this, you know, I mean, it's the same sort of thing that you see in religion, you know? I mean, you imagine, uh, you can any sort of vision of the devil can be secularized or semi-secularized into a conspiratorial force, and so can any vision of God. Um, and the Illuminati have been put into, slotted into um, all of those roles at different times.
3: Yes, being crusaders, being defenders, perpetrators. Um, yeah, it, yes. we'll we'll take a short break, Jesse, and we'll be right back. Today on Living Writers, Jesse Walker joins us from Baltimore. His latest book, The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory, now out in its paperback version. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
2: When the men in black come kicking in your door, And guitar playing outlaws lay spread eagle on the floor When our celebrated heroes have been cuffed and locked away It's gonna be a lonesome day we laugh at all the crazy things
1: those guitar players said
2: They talked about the working man and the troubled life he led When everything is perfect and no rebels in the way It's gonna be a lonesome day they singing up in heaven while we're living here in hell. Giving up our liberty and buying what they sell. Who's going to sing the song of freedom when freedom goes away? It's going to be a long song.
3: Glad you tuned in. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Jesse Walker is here. His book, The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. We've got this book on the table. We also have... um Jesse, your your book from two thousand one, Rebels on the Air, An Alternative History of Radio in America. Um and I'd love to get, get to that a little bit too before the end of the hour. Um it's funny, in your acknowledgments, Jesse, you actually like you tip your hat to the order of the Illumin, as well. So they get their their, their yeah the drifting. But then I'm cut off
4: before I can finish the thought. Yeah.
3: Ah, but I am not supposed to speak of that. Yeah. yeah. Very. I, you know, I
4: figured someone was going to accuse me of being part of a conspiracy if I wrote this book, so I might as well get out in front of the uh, of the or accusations. Have a limited hangout. So.
3: Oh, I'm sure, because in some ways it's good that there isn't a comment board for this.
4: Yeah, well, you know, you can go to uh, oh, is uh, there YouTube uh, <laughs> videos <laughs> where I'm interviewed and uh, see um, see people discuss this. So uh, oh. I, there, there are definitely um, you know people commenting in different places. Uh, but you know, I deliberately wrote this in a way that I, I I didn't set out to espouse my favorite conspiracy theories. I didn't set out to debunk my favorite conspiracy theories, or least favorite, I should say. I mean, it it really is a history of what people have believed, not of whether those stories are true. I mean, I certainly do comment in passing, especially with the early history stuff where people aren't likely to be familiar with it, you know, what the evidence says. But that's not the focus of the book, and I really wanted to write it in a way that both someone who sees themselves as the super skeptic who doesn't buy into any of these conspiracy theories, and someone who conceives of themselves as the super skeptic who doesn't believe anything the government tells them and believes all kinds of conspiracy theories, you know, both could enjoy the book um, in an open-minded way and, and, and learn from it. Um, and I've, uh, I've had positive feedback from both kinds of people as well as the various folks in between
3: yeah i mean it is so balanced i think I think an example of this is that and I might not be pronouncing the word right but par- um peridolia, yeah, yeah. The, so that phenomena of seeing images buried within other images jesse mm-hmm. when when you when you bring that up and you have that image from um Mark Phillips, the photographer who took the photo um of the World Trade Center with the towers burning and with the smoke billowing because i I somehow it just made me think as I was reading before I turned the page to see the actual image that you include in the chapter, I was thinking, Oh, right. You know, the, the, the face and the smoke is, is Satan's and there's horns, you know? And then I did turn the page and I saw, and I was like, geez, uh, yeah.
4: (laughs) Yeah. It's quite a picture. It is. And the great thing about that picture is that it's, he took a bunch of pictures and he sent them off and he didn't even think about it. And then he got the call, um, from a, from his agent saying, Mark, you have a face in your picture. <laughs> and then he looks at it and found out, oh, people are seeing this. Now, now, if you go online, you can find all sorts of photos where people have seen images, and oftentimes they're really um, striking. I Actually, mean, if, if just Google the word pareidolia. Um, it, it, you'll, you'll find people have photo sets. And some of them, it's just funny, like, you know, there's a faucet, and hey, it looks like a sad face, you know. Um, but other times, uh, there's uh, one I have in mind, uh, there's this burst of flame, and they put this picture of this burst of flame right next to a picture of the Pope, and the outlines are exactly the same. It, it's just, uh, so, you know, the, the, you know, it is, pareidolia turns the whole world into a Rorschach test, you know. Um, but there's always times when, um, I, actually, there's um, one of the... Figure, figures who picks up, who, I'm sorry, who pops up a lot in the book is Robert Anton Wilson, who I sort of invoke as sort of one of the godfathers of the ironic style of, of uh, paranoia. People who sort of tell conspiracy stories, um, not to, uh, not necessarily believing them, not necessarily debunking them, but but playing with them, seeing you know what you know for uh, what insights they can find, uh, what laughs they can find, or just you know what fun they can have, and. One thing that uh, I didn't get into in this book is that he and some other people, uh, actually William Burroughs is the one who who shared it with him, uh, started this whole mystique of the number 23 and how the number 23 is everywhere. And And they've mentioned in some of their books, and then fans of theirs talk about seeing 23 everywhere. And Wilson wrote about being um, just hanging out with someone and he said, "I understand the way the 23 thing works. I read what you write, and then uh, I start noticing it everywhere and it's always there. It's just now I'm primed to see it." And Wilson says, "Congratulations, you understand." And then they walk into the deli or whatever it was, and the guy was handed the number 23 and he <laughs> turned to him and says, "How do you do it?" <laughs>
3: exactly. <laughs> How do you do it? Now I understand in a whole different way than I thought I understood. (laughs) That's brilliant. Well, Jesse, what was one of the, like when you're doing your research, what was one of the scariest or the most surprising um, discoveries?
4: Boy, surprises. Um, This is more of, I don't know if this is the kind of surprise that you're asking about, Um, but I always sort of had this notion that, Historians knew things. (laughs) I mean, obviously, historians know lots of things. But I looked at, and this is what really hit me when I was looking at the origins of King Philip's War, Mm. um, and you know, the uh, alleged assassination that set it off. That there's a complete uncertainty about what actually happened, Mm. Um, and it's a that's one of those things that I sort of intuitively know on some level because. A, uh, you know in everyday life you know we're constantly surrounded by events that are you don't know exactly what's really going on even in this super documented time naturally something that happened several centuries ago there's going to be even more uncertainty you know I guess on, on an intellectual level I, I understood that but you know looking at the uh, complete um, <laughs> lack of uh, firm consensus. Um, you know, it, it was just the perfect way, I think, to sort of start the research, um, because that's kind of the vertigo you have to keep, you know, always close at hand if you're going to be writing about this, this topic. Um, and, and and it was it was there for me with the, you know, the first, you know, serious bit of um, you know, archival diving that I did.
3: So you have to know that you can endure that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, 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 sort of, or, or primed me for everything else that was to come.
3: <laughs> right. So, hence the most surprising. But yeah, I mean, that is a that is shocking, but true. It's just one of these things. Yeah, like you said, it's it's we we do ha- know on some level that these things are true, just as on our own experience will tell us as we have to keep moving through life. But yeah, there's you want to feel like there's there's some certainty, especially for things like. The, the genesis of like the origin point of a war, or yeah, or when lives are at stake. But um, but Jesse, since we have a few minutes left, can we talk a bit about Rebels on the Air, an alternative history sure. of radio in America? Um, so why why did you write this book? What was it your time at WCBN um, that influenced yeah, you? Yeah, it was a big part of
4: it. I mean, I mean, I had been a fan of college radio before I came to Michigan because I grew up in in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and my favorite radio station was WXYC down there, which is a very good station. And I came up to Ann Arbor and got involved with CBN, which is an even better station. And I'm not just, you know, kissing up when I say that. I, <laughs> I, I think it's a great station. Um, and uh, the experience of doing free form and being surrounded by people doing creative radio and and by people, you know, trying to do creative radio and flopping sometimes, including me, because, you know, experiments fail and that's part of, you know, the fun of it. Um, and, you uh, And I I was really sort of interested, I think, um, in the question of why radio like this was so rare. Um, And I I think that, you know, the book is, on the one hand, uh, a history of attempts to do, you know, eccentric, eccentric, eclectic, creative things on the radio dial. And on the other hand, a history of the restrictions that have, you know, shoved that not just to the margins in the way that you expect experimental things in the margins, but the margins in the way that makes it frequently people have to broadcast illegally to actually do it on the air. Uh, I mean, now we have the internet, which allows a much more, a much larger realm for um, legal experimentation. But um, you know, it it was not inevitable um, that stations like CBN be as rare as they are, and. And I think um, – and, uh, in fact, when the um, when the book came out, uh, one thing I often said when I was kind of getting across my – you know, sort of the political theme of the book to people, I, I would say that we could have radio with all the flexibility of the Internet, and now we don't. Um, now, nowadays, you know, looking back a decade and a half later, to some extent we have that because of radio on the Internet, um, but it's a uh, – we still could go further. So – but anyway, so it's this long history then of uh, – of all these colorful characters doing interesting things on the radio, sometimes as pirates, sometimes <laughs> not, um, and yeah, CBN had a lot to do with why I wrote it.
3: And and Jesse, for that, because I mean, when you're you're talking about like the possibilities are out that are out there now with the internet, um, or for the last decade or so, um, but it also reminds me that a lot of what people sometimes default to then are the ones where you you know one artist and you plug in that name of the artist and then you have. That named artist radio, so it's more just like similar sounds like it's still um like how how do these communities out there also find each other I think might be a, a an interesting question
4: yeah, I mean I think there's a lot of serendipity on the internet, but it's also true i mean what's really missing for me with a lot of internet radio is the kind of i mean one thing about CBN is that it's um it's not just. You know, a creative outlet. That it's a place. You know, both in the sense that there's literally, you know, a set of rooms in the Student Activities Building. Um, and you guys are still in the Student Activities. We building.
3: are. Yeah, you yeah. know, find us on the uh, ground level. Yeah. <laughs> <Basement>. and, <laughs>
4: and also in the sense that there's a. Um, you know, it's in Ann Arbor, and, and it's locally rooted. And obviously, a lot of stuff that happens on the internet, even though the internet is global, is very locally specific. But I mean, CBN was a gathering place um, in a way that a lot of internet um, operations are not. And I, I that's one thing which I. I this is one reason why FM radio and and college radio and community radio are uh, still important to me, even in the age of the internet, is that it's important to have this sort of you know third place of the air where where people can gather and which can be a community center and and I remember one thing that was a little different about CBN for me when because you know I was there from '88 to '93 and then again from 2008 to 2009 and in the inter in the uh, 15 years after I left and and before I came back, it seemed that there was a lot less of the sort of general hanging out at the station as a place um, that that there had been beforehand. And I, I thought that um, there was a it, – it, it, you know, it had lost a bit of its presence, um, and it, it still was a, a place and still had a presence in the community. But I think a lot of people were trying – had been turning to the Internet instead of to the radio for that, not just because the Internet was there, but because they had – gotten out of the habit of thinking of radio as a place where that could be found you know uh, i i mean i think a lot of students came to the university and and you know when i was 18 it was the 1980s radio was part of our lives and you know, that's part of, you know, your identity It was caught up with what you listened to and who mm-hmm. else listened to there and what the radio station did. And I think people who are growing up now who don't have that as part of their identity forget that it can be um, and that an institution like CBN can play that role. So I hope that isn't lost in the shift towards the Internet, because that's that's something that was certainly a lot, very enjoyable to me, and I, I wouldn't want other people to miss out on it.
3: Oh, me too, Jesse. Well said. This it's a real community, and there's there's something about radio, this WCBN and the freeform radio community that it's it's real. It's a real thing, and I think you can hear it over the yeah out there in the ether. Thank you so much, Jesse Walker, for talking with me today. <laughs>
4: Well, thank you. It's
3: been fun. It's been great. We've had both your books here uh, in the mix, Rebels on the Air, An Alternative History of Radio in America out with New York University Press 2001 and The United States of Paranoia, A conspiracy, Conspiracy Theory with HarperCollins. Jesse Walker, thank you so much. Thank you. Until next time, bye, Jesse. Goodbye, everyone.
1: To talk to the sister, the father and the mother With a microphone in one hand and a checkbook in the other And the camera noses into the tears on her face The tears on her face, the tears on her face You can put them back together with your paper and paste But you can't put them back together You can't put them back together What would you say, what would you do Children and animals two by two Give me the needle, give me the rope We're gonna melt them down for pills and soap Four and twenty gold bars, your desire Out of the frying pan, into the fire The king is in the counting house, some folk have all the luck and all we get is pictures of Lord and Lady Muck They come from lovely people with a hard line and hypocrisy There are ashtrays of emotion for the fag ends of the aristocracy What would you say? What would you do? Children and animals, two by two Give me the needle, give me the rope We're gonna melt them The, the milkman,
2: the paperboy, evening TV, you
1: miss your Beautiful,
0: beautiful header right there. The bed, you Snap, love, looks into the end zone, touchdown, Devin punches. And the crowd here at Michigan Stadium loving it. Oh, Finally, the fruits of their labor paying off, getting a goal. It. and Welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3 on your dial. Thank you for tuning in today. It is officially the start of winter, it hitting the 30s, and it does not look like it will let up anytime soon. We are ready for the long winter ahead. I'm your host, Andrew Hausman. With me is Brett Graham and the long awaited return of Patrick Mullen. Welcome back on the show. Happy to have you along, and we have quite an action packed day. As always, we're going to start with Michigan sports, and we'd just like to take this time to remind you that there are plenty of WCN broadcasts coming up of Michigan sports, including the hockey games against American International on both Friday and Saturday nights at 7.30 p.m., 7.35 p.m., excuse me, the men's basketball season opener, where they'll raise the 2014 Big Ten Championship banner against Hillsdale at 2 p.m. on Saturday, and the women's basketball game. On Sunday at two PM. So plenty of WCBN broadcast c- coming up as well. And also a Michigan basketball game mon- Monday at 8 PM. So plenty of Michigan plenty of WCBN action, Michigan sports action coming up.